Okay, let's go ahead and pray and then we'll dive in just by way of preview here. This is where what we're going to be talking about today as we continue in our doctrine of sin is the penalty of sin. So let's go ahead and unite our hearts and go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we praise you. We thank you for another Lord's Day, another first day of the week when we remember Christ's resurrection, that he is at your right hand, that he's won the victory over sin and death for us, that he has taken the penalty our sins deserve so that we might be freed and forgiven and reconciled to you. We thank you for the indwelling Holy Spirit, and we need him this morning to light up our hearts with the truth of the word and to soften and renew our minds that we might accept and believe and obey it. And we pray that, especially as we address this issue of sin's penalty, that you would help us to understand it and that it would deepen our understanding of the gospel and our appreciation and love for Christ. And we pray it in his name. Amen. Amen. Okay, I'm going to once again ask for each of us to read. Um, If you don't want to read, just say, can we skip me? That's fine, but... As we go along, I'll have you guys be looking at verses. I want to just start with this simple reality that God must punish sin. It is interesting that um, I think even this is a controversial doctrine. It seems to many people that if God were truly great, he would just let sin go. Uh, that he would just forgive without punishing. It seems, in other words, to put it differently, it seems that a God who would just forgive unilaterally would be greater than a God who must punish sin. But that is not what the Bible teaches. Uh, Actually, the opposite is true. And I think that, just to go back for a second, if you were to think about it, people say that, They say that, why doesn't God just let sin go? Why does he require punishment? Yet, in our own lives, we typically don't act that way, nor do we want people who are in a position of authority to act that way. For instance, if you were to have your home broken into and someone came and you know, while you were gone, broke into your home, beat up your family, kidnapped one of your kids, and then was later caught by the police and arrested and taken to trial. And the judge heard all the evidence. It was obvious that the man did it. But at the end, he said, you know what? I'm going to show my magnanimity by just canceling the offense and letting the man go. Let's all just forgive you would be outraged, right? Anyone would be outraged. We would say, no, justice requires that a punishment be meted out. Well, we all act that way, but then when it comes to God, we think God would be greater if he just let sin go, if he just canceled it out and forgave it. But we really, none of us would want that for ourselves, nor would we act that way ourselves, we would say that to do that is unjust. And, of course, 
the fact that that is the case just shows that we're made in the image of God. It's a reflection of our desire. Our, our desire for justice to be done reflects God's own righteous character and his requirement that justice be done. And so we're going to look at this. If we could have, I'm going to actually just pull both these up. And if we could have, let's see, Carol, would you be willing to look up a verse, uh, Habakkuk 1.13? Keith, if you would look up Psalm 5, 4 through 6. Isaiah, Exodus 34, 6 and 7. Let's see, Paul, Roe, Deuteronomy 32, 4. Chanel, if you would look up Psalm 9, 7 through 8. And then Carrie, if you would look up Ecclesiastes 12, 14. I'll leave those up so that you guys can see your verses. But first of all, we have to see that God is perfectly, God's perfectly righteous nature cannot simply tolerate sin. Like we live in a world of sin and we ourselves are sinners. So we become used to sin. It doesn't affect us the way that it should because we swim in it every day, right? It's only when something really bad happens, you know, like what has happened in Israel in recent days that we find ourselves, even though even gross sinners will find themselves outraged at something that bad. But every day, the little lies, the selfishness, the pride, the anger, bitterness, all of that is just it's the world we swim in, and, or the um, air we breathe, and the, the pool we swim in. So we're used to it, like a kid that's in cold water, and they get used to it over after a little while, right? So let's, but God is not that way. God's perfectly righteous nature cannot tolerate sin. Habakkuk one thirteen. Carol, could you read that? Yep. You who are pure eyes and to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? All right, so Habakkuk is crying out to God for justice at the evil he sees in Israel, and he appeals to the holiness of God it says you who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. So he's rightly describing the character of God as not being able to tolerate evil. Uh, Psalm five, four through six, Keith. For you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. No evil dwells with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all who do iniquity. You destroy those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors the man of bloodshed and deceit. All right. We sometimes like the phrase, God hates sin but loves the sinner. But note that Psalm 5.5 says that he hates all evildoers. And I think what that means is he stands opposed to, he stands over against people in his wrath because they do evil. You can't just take sin and abstract it from the sinner. Right? No, we commit sin. That's what sin is, is uh, the rebellious acts of volitional personal creatures. And, and so here we see that, again, God cannot simply tolerate sin. His righteous nature rises up against it in holy hatred and wrath. And he, as you see, even hinted at in this text, he, he must punish it. He must 
destroy evil. And of course, because he is the creator, God is the judge of his creation and all of his personal creatures, both angels and all mankind. So someone could say, well, I don't worship the God of the Bible. That doesn't exempt them from his just judgment because there is no other God. He is the creator of all mankind. And so all mankind, whether they believe in God or not, will stand before him someday and give an account for their lives because they are his creatures and he made them in his image. So let's read some of these passages. The first one, very familiar to you, Exodus 34, 6 through 7. Is that you, Isaiah? Then Yahweh passed by in front of him and called out, Yahweh, Yahweh God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and the fourth generation. Reading from the old, from the new LSB, I see. <laughs> All right. Notice, this is, there is some degree of tension here in this verse, isn't there? He forgives sin, and yet will by no means clear the guilty. He visits the iniquity of the fathers and the children, the children's children, to the third and fourth generation. Without getting into all of the interpretive issues with this text, just notice that the God of heaven and earth, the Creator, will not, will by no means simply clear the guilty, let sin go unpunished. He will, he must punish sin with perfect justice. Deuteronomy 32.4, is that you, Paul? Yeah. The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. All right, so he is a God of perfect justice, and therefore he will not. This is why he cannot let sin go unpunished, because to let sin go unpunished would be an injustice. Psalm 9, 7 through 8. For the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice, and he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the peoples with uprightness. So he is the judge of the world, and he does and will judge all mankind at the end of the age. Why do I say he, why do you think there's a present tense there? He judges the world with righteousness. Does God judge people now? Like in this life? If so, how does he do it? By hardening their heart. Yeah, there's all kinds of different ways, right? Sometimes his justice breaks in in the form of, hardening people's hearts, giving them over to their own sinful desire. And sometimes he just says, um, death is coming for you now. Uh, There's many examples of that in Scripture, Old Testament, the flood, New Testament, Ananias and Sapphira, and you could multiply many others. All right, Ecclesiastes 12, 14. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. All right, so here we see that God isn't going to let, he's not just going to judge the big things. He's going to judge every, everything that even we don't know about, that we do in secret, or that other people do in secret, things that other people don't know about us. Obviously, 
as believers were forgiven, but just as human beings, there will be no deed that will go, no sin that will go unpunished. Sobering, right? God must punish sin. He is the judge of the world. He is perfectly just, and so he must bring, he cannot clear the guilty without violating his own character. He will judge every sin down to the last one. And the just punishment for sin is death. So I'm just going to pull these up here so that we can assign verses here. Craig, would you look up Romans one thirty two, And then Scott, uh, Romans 5.12. Lisa, Romans 6.16. And then we'll just have you also read verse 23 of chapter 6. So. And then let's see, Brooke, would you be willing to read Genesis two sixteen through 17? So the just punishment for sin is death. Because of man's frailty and corruption, he underestimates the gravity of sin and the punishment it deserves, right? And, and don't you know that? We know that about ourselves, and we also see it in the world. We see that people treat sin lightly. They think of it as, you know, I mean, even the word sin, we don't use that anymore. What, what kind of words do we use? Brokenness. Yeah, so brokenness instead of wicked. Right. What else? Messed up, up, mistakes, right? Right. Yeah, we were we were bad and we kind of (laughs) chuckle. But you understand, like if we look at we actually did this before, right? When we we talked about the nature of sin and how the Bible describes it. It doesn't describe it in those terms. And uh, I'm always amazed that even in. Things like Christian music on, say, positive, encouraging music. <laughs> you rarely ever hear sin described in biblical terms. It is often described in worldly ways, right? Like, I've made a lot of mistakes in my life, but God loves me anyway. So, it's that type of watered-down view. So, we, we underestimate the gravity of sin. But the Scripture reveals that the just punishment for sin before God is death. And I'm just going to, there are many places we could look, but I think it's just helpful to look in the book of Romans and see how f- throughout Romans, uh, it's, sin is described as, the, the punishment of sin is described as death. So let's start with Romans one thirty-two. Is that you, Craig? Yeah. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, and not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Okay, so in the previous section, he's talking about all mankind and the sins that they commit. And if you look at the list of sins in the previous verses, you'll actually notice that it tracks pretty closely with the Ten Commandments. So, this is not like, oh, these are really bad sins. This is the range of sins that people commit. And, and here you see that little phrase, those who practice such things deserve to die. So the just punishment that sin deserves is death. And if you go to Romans chapter 5, verse 12, who has that one? Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. Okay, so there again we see uh, the connection between sin and death. Sin came and death came with it because death is the punishment for sin. 
over one chapter, chapter 6, verse 16 and 23. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one who you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? And then, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. All right. So we're all familiar with verse 23, the wages of sin is death. What does sin earn us? It earns us death. But you can see even multiple times leading up to it in the book of Romans, that same principle that the just desert of sin is death. Sin leads to death, verse 16, and death is the wages of sin. So this is a repeated theme in scripture. And I would I would argue that in the scriptures, it's this is true, that is, that the just punishment for sin is death, not just for many sins, like, you know, the first few are you're, something less than death, but you get too many in there, and you're going to get death. You know, that, that's sort of how we would think, you know, you remember the three strikes laws in California, you know, that's sort of how we think, like, think about sin, like, well, surely, you know, certain sins, or if we don't commit too many sins, we're okay. Uh, No, even one sin. And it's not just especially bad sins. So this is our, this is the way we operate. We compare ourselves with other human beings and we go, you know, well, that person, they're really bad. I could see them deserving death, but me, I'm I'm not as bad as that. I, I don't know about death for me. That's not the way the Bible treats it. In fact, just going back to the very first sin ever committed, I mean, what was it? Like a heinous crime? Well, yeah, it was, but it's just that it was a very simple thing. Don't eat this fruit. She ate it. One sin, relatively minor. But the point was that even that minor transgression of the simplest command was a heinous sin. It was, as R.C. Sproul put it, cosmic treason. It was to say to God, I don't think you should be up on the throne. I think I should be the king of my life. And so, what did it say? Uh, Brooke, Genesis 2, 16 and 17. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die, or you shall surely die. Right. So, in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. The wages of sin is death. Even one sin leads to death. All right? So this is the sober reality. The just punishment for sin is death. Any questions at this point? Or any comments? Or Okay. All right. The punishment for sin includes physical death. Now, physical death is... At least one way to describe it is the the separation of the soul from the body, resulting in the body's ruin. Okay, and uh, just to see one place where we can uh, see this, Genesis thirty five eighteen through nineteen describes Jacob's wife Rachel describes her death. We're literally brought in to observe her death. Up close and personal, it says, And as her soul was departing, for she was dying. Right? So there it is. 
She was dying. What did that mean? Her soul was departing from her body. As her soul was departing for she was dying, she called his name Ben-Ani, which means son of my sorrow. But his father called him Benjamin, which means son of my strength or my right hand. So Rachel died and she was buried on the way to Ephrath. So it's interesting that once the soul is departed from the body in physical death, you bury the body. What's at least one reason why we would do that? There's a certain honor to it. But why also do you bury the body in the ground? Because it's going to be, yeah, it's ugly, right? It's ugly. It won't take long before you'll regret not burying the body, right? Remember what Martha said to Jesus when he said, open the tomb? Lord, by this time, there will be an odor. Stinketh, the old, use the old King James. Yeah, so Genesis, so... So where do we see that the punishment for sin includes physical death? Well, it's interesting. John, or Genesis 2, Brooke read it. In the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then you have Genesis 4, which is Cain and Abel. When you move to Genesis 5, you have the genealogy of Adam all the way down to, to Noah and his sons. And the, the striking phrase in there is... So-and-so lived so many years, and then he died. And in fact, as you go through the genealogy, you've probably heard this before. As you go through, you have that phrase repeated again and again and again. You know, like these. So they live a very long time, but they die. And he died. And he died. And he died. And he died. And the day that you did it, you shall surely die. Sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, right? So physical death, even at the end of a long life, is... Obviously a result of what happened in Genesis 3. And then Genesis 6, 11 through 13. Just to emphasize the fact that um, sin brings about, the, the punishment for sin is physical death. You think about it, Genesis 6, 11, Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I've determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. I will destroy them with the earth. So here, what is the judgment for sin? It's not, there's no mention here of hell or what happens to the soul, right? This is the wiping out of all humanity in terms of their physical lives. They're swept away from the earth. They are put to death physically. And over and over again in the scripture, you see that. You see it again in Genesis 18 with Sodom and Gomorrah. And you could just go on and on down the line. That physical death is one aspect of the just punishment for sin. Even here you see it's connected with their sin. They filled the earth with violence. So God would put them to death physically. Acts chapter 5. Again, this is Ananias and Sapphira. Let's read this, Acts 5, 1 through 6. 
But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. So, Ananias has sinned, and what will happen to him? When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And a great fear came upon all who heard him. The young man rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. The wages of sin is death, and that includes physical death. Okay? So, that's one aspect of the punishment for sin, is physical death. Okay, so this is my least gross uh, image of a zombie that I could find, right? Um, you imagine, you just, <laughs> you just Google like images of zombie. I'm like, well, I can't use those for <laughs> Sunday school class. But, but the reason I chose that image is because of what I'm trying to help you see is that there's also another kind of death where we could be physically alive and yet receive the punishment of spiritual death. So the punishment for sin includes spiritual death. Spiritual death is the relational separation of the soul from God, resulting in the soul's ruin. So physical death is the separation of the soul from the body to the ruin of the body. Spiritual death is the relational separation of the soul from God, from His life. And it results in the soul's ruin. So the soul, the body, begins to stink and decay. Well, that's sort of what happens to the soul of man when he is estranged from God and his life. He becomes a ruined person filled with corruption, corrupt desires, corrupt thoughts. So let's bring these up and I'm going to have some people read here. Let's see, where are we at? Claire, um, could you read Genesis 2, 16 through 17? And then, let's see, Genesis 3, 7 through 8. Rich, Ezekiel 37, 1 through 2, if you're willing. And also, Rich, if you could read verses 11 through 14 after that. And then, um, Phil, Ephesians 2, 1 through 7. Martin, Ephesians 4, 18. Steve, Steve, Colossians 2, 13 through 14. And then finally, Pam, Luke 15, 24. So I want to go through these. Let's start with Genesis 2, 16. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. And then down to 3, 7, and 8. Um, then that... Then the eyes of both of them were open, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed the leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. All right, so do you see what I did there? The warning, in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. They eat of it. 
but they don't die physically, right? And actually, I think that was indeed a mercy. But they did die in another sense, didn't they? Because all of a sudden, they were aware of their nakedness. And I think that's a reference to the fact that they were ashamed, right? Why were they ashamed? Because now they knew they were guilty and corrupted before God. And you see that manifest that when the holy presence of God, whom they had always enjoyed fellowship with in the garden, unhindered, now when he came, what did they do? They ran from him. They hid from his presence. So they had died in a sense. They had died in the sense that they were now alienated from God. Why? Because they were guilty before him and corrupted before him. And there's a new hostility, an enmity between God and man. And this you can see actually from the conversation that ensues. When God says, who told you that you were naked? Verse 11, have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And notice the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me. So who did Adam blame? He blamed the woman, but who did he blame? Right. Well, it's your fault, God. You see, there's, a, there's an enmity there, a guilt and a corruption that has led to a relational animosity now, an alienation. This is spiritual death. Ezekiel 37, verses 1 and 2. Is that you, Martin? And then also verses 11 through 14. Rich. Oh, I'm sorry, Rich. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> the hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley, and it was full of bones. He had me pass among them all around, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley. And behold, they were very dry. And then, and then verses 11 through 14 which I think I would just going to have you to read as well, Rich. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the entire house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up, and our hope has perished. We are completely cut off. Therefore prophecy, prophesy and say to them, This is what the Lord God says. Behold, I am going to open your graves and cause you to come up out of your graves, my people, and I will bring you unto the land of Israel. Then you will know that I am the Lord when I have opened your graves and caused you to come up out of your graves, my people. And 14. Mm-hmm. And I will put my spirit within you and you will come to life and I will place you on your own land. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken and done it, declares the Lord. Okay, the reason I bring this up is because, I mean, who are we talking about in this vision? You see a vision of a valley full of dry bones. Dead as dead can be. And then he explains who the bones symbolize, right? And he says, this is the whole house of Israel. So Israel isn't physically dead, right? But they're, they're in exile because of their sin. Um, away from Zion, away from the temple, away from the land of promise, There's a spiritual alienation from God because of their unfaithfulness. And they say, our bones are dried up, our hope is lost, we are cut off, right? So the imagery of of, of a spiritual, of, of death is used to describe Israel's spiritual condition. And then, of course, this is a prophecy about the end times, revival of God's people. It's described in terms of a resurrection, except... 
I will put my spirit within you and you shall live. So there's a, it's a spiritual resurrection just as it's a spiritual condition of death. And of course, we know that this is anticipating the redemption that would come in the future. The redemption actually that Paul talks about in these very terms of a spiritual Resurrection, as it will, in Ephesians chapter 2. So if someone would read Ephesians 2, 1 through 7, Phil. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. It is interesting to read those two passages together, isn't it? Ezekiel 37 and Ephesians 2. Because the imagery is exactly the same. And it's as if you could hear Paul sort of drawing upon the prophecy of Ezekiel 37 in this chapter. Saying you were dead. And, and by the way, this is where that imagery of zombie comes in, right? And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. So you're alive in the body, but you're spiritually dead. And what does this condition of spiritual death look like? It looks like this. Following the courts of the world. Following the devil, the prince of the power of the air. Living in the passions of your flesh carrying out the desires of the body and mind, being by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind, right? This is the true walking dead. This is what a spirit, the, the, the spiritual condition of a unbeliever is like, rotting on the inside, alive in the body, but dead to God and living in a way that merits his judgment, Right? And we know that this is a spiritual condition of death because redemption is described in terms of being raised from death to life, raised up with Christ, partaking of his resurrection life even now, right? So when what is described in verse 6 happens to a person, does anything happen to their body? No, right? Unfortunately, no. A person could have this happen to them in a church service and they don't, nothing happens. You don't see any change in the outside, but on the inside, they've been brought from death to life and they, and it's by grace and it's through faith that God gives them. It's a gift of God. And now they will experience, now they are, verse 10, created in Christ Jesus for good works that they should walk in them. Spiritual life. Right? Ephesians 4.18. Who has that one? They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of their ignorance. 
that is in them due to the hardness of heart. See, there's another description of spiritual death, alienated from the life of God. The, the parallel passage to that in Ephesians or in Colossians, Colossians 1, he uses the same kind of language, but he describes it a little bit differently. He says, You were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. It's the same truth, right? Alienated from the life of God, dead. And what does that look like? It means being hostile in mind to your God, to your creator, and doing evil deeds. So that's spiritual death. That's a judgment, a consequence of sin. Colossians 2, 13-14, who has that one? And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by canceling the record of death that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So you can see, especially with the juxtaposition there, what does spiritual death mean? Well, the uncircumcision of your flesh refers to the condition of your heart. The circumcision of the heart in Colossians is, is your death to your old sin nature and your new life in Christ. That's a person who's been received the circumcision of Christ. Uncircumcision in the flesh would mean that you're still dead and you're still living in the flesh, right? You don't have new spiritual life. But it's also connected with guilt because life brings forgiveness. Your sins nailed to the cross. So guilt and corruption. One more text I think is interesting is Luke 15. Now, just before we turn there, does anyone remember what, without the person who turned there already knows, what Luke 15 has? Three parables in succession. The lost... A lost coin, a lost sheep, a lost son. So this is the parable of the prodigal son. You know the story of the son. He spurns the father. Says, I wish you were dead. I want my inheritance now. Goes into the far country to spend it all in wild living, right? How does the father describe that condition? Luke 15, 24. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. Right. He was dead. He was hostile to me. He was alienated to me. He was doing evil. Right. So this is a second aspect of what it means that the wages of sin is death. There's physical death. There's spiritual death. And this is what spiritual death looks like. An alienation from God. A a state of spiritual ruin where you're in bondage to sinful desires. That means you love to do what is wrong and you hate to do what is right. And you are under God's judgment, guilty, condemned under God's judgment. This is spiritual death. What about the last aspect? Eternal death. The Bible also uses the language of death to refer to that final terrible state of hell, which you might say eternal death is the final, definitive, permanent, relational and physical separation of the whole person, body and soul from God's goodness and love, resulting in their everlasting ruin under his righteous wrath in hell. 
I didn't put this in here, but let me just bring this up really quick. I didn't put the verse in there. John 5. In John 5, Jesus speaks of the final judgment. He says, do not marvel at this, verse 28. For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. It's a resurrection, right? Mm -hmm. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. You know that there's a general resurrection where all humanity, whether they are God's people or not, will be raised in a body. That body will be fit either for an eternity of judgment or an eternity of life. It's interesting. That's why I say I believe eternal death is the final relational and physical separation of the whole person, body and soul from God's goodness and love, resulting in their everlasting ruin under his righteous wrath and hell. Second Thessalonians, let's let's go through these. Um, let's see, where are we at? So Quinn, could you read Second Thessalonians 1, 8, and 9? Scott, could you read Matthew 13, 41 through 42? And then we'll come back here. Carol, if you wouldn't mind reading Matthew 25, 41 through 46. And then actually, Keith, if you could read Revelation 2, 11. All right, Wendy, if you could do Revelation 26, 10 and 14, and then Isaiah, Revelation 21, 8. So each of these are going to contribute layers to this picture of what eternal death looks like. Let's start with 2 Thessalonians 1, 8 and 9. Quinn. In flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction, away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of the God. All right. This is the parousia, the second coming of Christ. He comes in vengeance, dealing out vengeance. By, by the way, people go, ooh, vengeance. Don't do that with vengeance. Vengeance is simply, there could be sinful vengeance, you know. But think about it. Never take vengeance into your own hands. But leave vengeance to the Lord. For he says, vengeance is mine. I will repay. That's what vengeance is, is the, the repayment of wrong. Now, it's wrong for us to take vengeance because we're not the judge. And, and we cannot repay perfectly like God can. But God will repay every wrong. And, and that seems, seems like, well, isn't that a bit harsh? No, it's not. It's not harsh, right? This is... Just judgment. You remember the old covenant standard? An eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, right? It's the, the perfect repayment of wrong with the, with the exact just penalty. So if we don't receive mercy from God and forgiveness, what will we receive? Just punishment. Vengeance. A, an exact repayment. Here, the just punishment for sin is described as eternal destruction or ruin away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. By the way, does that mean basically that a complete separation from God altogether? Whereas the evil person will say, oh, thank goodness, I'm finally free of God. I mean, that would actually not be a blessing, would it? But who will be, who will be carrying out? 
this punishment? God. I think we need to be careful when we, when we, when we talk about hell as you getting what you want. That is, you won't have God anymore. Oh, you will have God. You won't have his blessing, his mercy, his love. You will have his just wrath and punishment. That is the reality. God sustains hell just like he does anything else that exists, right? It's a sobering thing. I do not say that lightly, but we need to be clear on that. But it's a, it's a banishment that is terrible in that it's a banishment from all of God's goodness and mercy and love, right? Right now, the wicked, the reason they, they, they like you know, their estrangement from God is because they enjoy many good things from God, right? <laughs> Rains and crops and you know, food to make their soul joyful. They live and move and breathe every day because of God. But they hate God and they spurn Him. Well, one day, all those good gifts, all those merciful things that God gives to the unjust and wicked, He will remove and they will receive just repayment. Matthew 13, 41 through 42. Let's got that. The Son of Man shall send forth His angels, and they shall gather out of His kingdom all things that offend, and them which do iniquity, and shall cast them into a furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. By the way, is this just passing out of existence? No, because there is wailing and gnashing of teeth. It's a conscious punishment. Uh, verse 20, uh, ver- sorry, chapter 25, verses 41. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And then verse 46. And these will go away into the eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So it's punishment, fire. People say, is it really a fire? Well, I don't know. I think that fire, it's like heaven. You know, when John sees heaven, he sees a vision of heaven. He says, it's like this. Because it's indescribable in its glory. You're talking about things that are transcend our categories, but he uses things that we do understand to describe what it will be like. Perhaps that's what fire is. Why it's used to describe hell, that it's taking something that we do understand. Something that's the most horrible thing we could think of, right? Being in a fire and not being consumed, but just suffering the agony. That is what hell is described like. Sobering. And here, the Revelation text is where we see that it's described as the second death. And here we see that how it's, it's the, final, the final state of death. Revelation 2.11 He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. All right. You may die physically, but you'll be saved from the second death. What is the second death? Well, Revelation 20, verse 6. Sorry, Wendy, I gave you some hard ones here. I'm sorry. But um, Revelation 26, 10, and 14. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And the devil 
who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophets were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And then I'll just add verse 15 in there. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So you see the lake of fire. It's again an image of the final state of the wicked. It is a place of final punishment for the devil and his angels. And for any whose name is not written in the book of life, any who are not in Christ, who are not among his people, It is a place of eternal torment, tormented day and night forever. Again, you see it's not just an annihilation. It's not just a passing out of existence. It's a place of eternal conscious punishment. Revelation 21.8 is the last one. But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable, murderers and sexually immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. There we see it again. So, I could add text to these. You think of the way that Jesus describes it as as being cast into outer darkness. But the point is, is that it is a reality. It's not a reality that we like to talk about. It's not a reality that... it's It's a painful reality because it reminds us of the destiny of perhaps people that we, ha- we love, but it is the, the final aspect of the wages of sin. So, the wages of sin is death, physical death, spiritual death, and eternal death. And you might even say, spiritual death, then physical death, and then eternal death. This is the wages of sin. I, I mean, this is not just like... I messed up and God's kind of angry with me. This is a very sobering reality. But there are implications of this that are so glorious. One at first, it, one of the reasons this is important for us as Christians is it humbles us. It teaches us the punishment our sin deserves. Right? When we say I'm a sinner, you know, I deserve my sin deserves the punishment my sin deserves. This is what we're talking about. That's humbling. So it takes a sinner from merely thinking of themselves as like a beggar, right? Asking God for bread. Because if you see a beggar on the side of the road, you go, the poor guy. But that's not an accurate picture. That can be one part of the picture. But it can't be the whole picture. Because... Our sin, our sin, sinfulness is not, does not, it's not just that the consequence of sin is that it makes us really needy. The consequence of sin is far, far worse than that. We're far worse than beggars. This is what our sin deserves. It also fills us with awe and gratitude by teaching us what Jesus saved us from. You know, if someone comes along and saves you from you know, detention. That's one thing. It doesn't fill you with much gratitude. No, thanks. Thanks, dude. But if someone saves you from this, right? Spiritual ruin, 
physical death and eternal destruction and hell. Boy, that just, if you truly believe that, you can't help but be filled with awe and gratitude that you were rescued from such a fate. Third, it fills us with wonder and with admiration for Jesus by teaching us the horror of what he suffered in our place at the cross. You know, not too long back in the life of our church, we, as elders, had to deal with this, had to think through this issue of hell. Is hell a place of eternal conscious punishment or is it simply physical death? And so that you just, you are put to death and it might be painful in the process, but you simply pass out of existence. There's lots of things to say about this, but one of them is, then what in the world was going on in Gethsemane? Right? Are, we, are you telling me that Jesus sweat drops of blood? He said, my soul is troubled to the point of death. In his humanity, he was so troubled, disturbed, horrified at what he was about to do that it almost killed him in his human nature just to face it. If all he was facing was physical death, followed by resurrection, would that have been his reaction? I mean, many people have faced physical death with nobility. Why did, was Jesus so troubled by it? Precisely because it wasn't just physical death he was facing. He was going to drink the cup the cup of God's anger, his wrath. He was going to be crying out on the cross, why have you forsaken me? He was, as we sing in that hymn, it's it's accurate. He went through hell and down into the grave. He experienced hell upon the cross. And you say, but hell is eternal ruin. Yeah, and because he was, this is why he had to be Yahweh in the flesh. Because only God could experience an eternal punishment of that magnitude in the cross and pay it and exhaust it in its fullness on the cross. And that's what he did. So he went through hell and then physical death. But physical death wasn't the worst part of it, right? It was one aspect of it. But it was far, far worse than that. And unless you understand that that's what it means, that Christ died for our sins, much more than just physical death, you will never appreciate and grasp the true magnitude of the cross. Oh, oh, the wonder of the cross on which the Prince of Glory died. Finally, it helps us appreciate the glory of redemption. By teaching us that it provides physical, spiritual, and eternal life through our participation in Christ's resurrection life. We are raised up with Christ right now. What does that mean right now for us? What do we call that? New spiritual life. Yeah, new spiritual life. Re. Generation. I always, my kids always forget the word and I always say re and they go generation. <laughs> Regeneration, which is what? It's just being born again, coming from a place of spiritual death to spiritual life. Reconciliation to God. Guilt removed. 
heart changed, hunger and thirst for righteousness, right? And then when we die, we have the hope of physical resurrection, the complete removal of all the consequences, all of the effects of sin upon our nature. No more flesh, sinful nature remaining. No more corruption in our bodies. That's why people won't even recognize you, right? I mean, like Jesus, he rose from the dead in a glorified body. So I know this can't be my optimal physical appearance, right? Someday we will all have glorified bodies with souls completely freed from corruption, completely submitted to joyfully to the governance of the Spirit, and eternal life rather than eternal ruin and destruction in hell, separated from God under His wrath. We will enjoy sweet fellowship with God. And as Paul says in Ephesians 2, that throughout the ages He will show us the kindness of His grace. We'll be able to sing that song, Psalm 23, without the shadow of death part, right? Or the enemy's part. We'll just be able to sing of life under our good shepherd. Paths of righteousness, still waters, green pastures, perfect security, perfect provision throughout eternity, right? So, redemption is spiritual life, physical life, and eternal life in fellowship with God, body and soul in the new creation. But it's only if you understand the reciprocal, the way those reflect the punishment, how they're the undoing of each aspect of the wages of sin, which is physical, spiritual, physical, and eternal ruin and destruction or death, that you will grasp the glory of the redemption that Christ provides. Well, let's pray And get out of this hot box. (laughs) Father, thank you for our time this morning. Lord, we are humbled to think of our ruined state before we were saved. How we were like dead people walking. Living according to the lusts of our flesh. Haters of God. Enemies alienated from your life. And completely oblivious and ignorant to our true condition. Thinking that we were wise when we were fools. Children of your wrath, headed off the cliff of eternal destruction. And you and your grace came along and plucked us out of that condition. You, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive in Christ. Gave us faith and trust in Him. Gave us repentant hearts lavished upon us the unsearchable riches of Christ, justification, adoption, sanctification, gave us a foretaste of resurrection life by the Spirit even now, and the hope of eternal life in resurrection glory with you. Oh God, you rescued us. You rescued us from hell, the lake of fire, eternal destruction and ruin where we would have had weeping and gnashing of teeth for all eternity. And you've saved us. We praise you. We thank you. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. 
We pray that these things would sink into our souls and have a transformative effect upon us to hate sin more, to love Christ more. In His name we pray. Amen.